that's a really powerful message of like you don't get to decide how your legacy is interpreted. And, and yeah, Alan Moore. <laughs> Fuck man, don't do that. This is film tank 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 tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You know, we sit here like a couple of regular fellas. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. The baby is starting to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it, but they'll know. Again, everyone, and welcome in to episode 214 of Film Tank. I am Alex Diekman, along with Nick Cheney. Hi! <laughs> Good to see you too, buddy. Thank you. Well, I didn't say that, but, uh, you know, thanks for agreeing with something that I... Uh... Well, you said good to see you too. Yeah. I never explicitly said good to see you. So I just wanted okay. to, you know, I just, you know, we're on a podcast where we have to speak our opinions and, you know, our feelings. And I just, you know, I want things to be crystal clear, you know, without people putting words in my mouth or other foreign objects. Where, what is driving this? What's driving what? Your, your little soapbox moment here. It's not a soapbox. Isn't it? I don't think so. <laughs> Over in the other corner, we have Tusat Egan joining us. Quis custodite ipso custodes! Who watches the Watchmen? Didn't need to spoil it! Wasn't well, really a spoiler. <laughs> For our Latin listeners. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> This episode is, is good to see you, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yes. That was weird. The usual awkward introduction uh, is just a continuous tradition yeah. on this lovely little podcast we have here, and it just keeps on going. So uh, this episode right here is dedicated to talking about the... Oh, oh not Nick Cheney. It is to you, too. I thought it was going to be dedicated to a person. I was like, that's very sweet. Naturally, I I don't know, but you know, I assumed came to the forefront of my own mind. But <laughs> naturally, uh, but okay, no, yeah, you were speaking uh, poetically. Please I continue. also was speaking just in general. Uh, we are going to be discussing uh, the series uh, season, whatever you want to call it, uh, of Watchmen that just concluded a few weeks ago on HBO, uh, which was created by Damon Lindelof. So this series, um, I'm guessing a lot of people know what Watchmen is, but I'll just go over what HBO put out for this, uh, is set in an alternate history where masked vigilantes are treated as outlaws, the Watchmen, 
embrace the nostalgia of the original groundbreaking or sorry, no, sorry. Watchmen embraces the nostalgia of the original groundbreaking graphic novel of the same name while attempting to break new ground of its own. That is a very uh that was not written by HBO or was that that was not written by MDB. That was actually written by HBO. Yeah, that that's a uh... actual Yeah, I mean that's that's <laughs> A description of the intent of the series rather yeah, than what say, the series actually, is about. But I think that's also probably on purpose in the sense that that would have been written before the show aired. Yeah. So yeah. therefore they didn't want to give anything away. And again, but... like I said before, I even read that. I'm assuming most people are aware of what Watchmen yeah. was. You literally can't talk about what the main storyline is until you finish the first episode. Like what is the actual main like trajectory trajectory and what is happening and why yep. these characters are doing but yeah so uh, a lot of people here um and we'll probably be going back and forth in between talking about the actors names and their characters names but just to give a quick background of some of the main players here uh regina kane plays pretty much the main character throughout the entirety of the yeah. season uh her uh name is angela abar but her uh watchman or not really Watchmen, but her... Her alter ego is yes, Sister Knight. Is Sister Knight. Uh, also, too, uh, her husband is played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. Yeah, but his name is Kyle Abar. It is, and he yep, has name another is... name he will go by yep. later on in the season. Yep. Uh, so they are the two... I think it's safe to say we're going to spoil this show within, like, seconds of I mean, yeah, so he, he ended up being the human form of Dr. Manhattan. What? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's just, that's it's, just how we do it. So, yeah, yeah not that we, yeah, whatever. no, it's going to be like that here. Yeah. So, uh, Jeremy Irons is here uh, playing Scar. Adrian Veidt. Oh, Adrian Veidt, also Dude. known as Ozymandias. That is true. Uh, also, Lewis Gossett Jr. is here. Uh, his character's name, can't remember off the top of my head, is uh, Will. Will, yes. Will, mm-hmm. Will Reeves. But Will. guess who he is? <laughs> He's Hooded Justice. Justice. Oh, man, another spoiler. Yeah. This is fun. Although, again, previous episode, we talked about that one. True. uh, That was a major reveal in the sixth episode. Please do not listen to this episode if you haven't watched it. It's too late. It's too late. I don't think the reveal... I mean, those are cool twists, but I also feel like, once again, the sign of a good twist is that the twist doesn't matter in the sense of the, the hiding of the information doesn't matter. That just makes it more fun the first time through, mm-hmm. but it's not like you're going to miss out on the experience of watching it. Even if you know those two details, mm-hmm. if anything, it might make it even more illuminating leading up to those moments. Yeah. So real quickly, the other few people who are main players throughout the entirety of the season are Gene smart, who plays Lori Blake. Also Tim Blake Nelson, who plays looking glass mm-hmm. And he's really only in the first episode, but he has recurring appearances throughout. And that's Don Johnson, who plays Judd Crawford. And that is the ending of the first episode, where he is hanging from a tree, uh, and a spot of his blood drops on his badge, which is a obvious not clear to nod to the original Watchmen. Lindell off fleek. <laughs> so... Uh, those are the main players and the main idea of what this was. Um, I will just start off by saying that we've talked about this series multiple times previously on the podcast 
mostly in the lead up to it, probably the first time was maybe like a year before it aired. Yeah. And then we revisited the idea of it again about mm. six months before it aired. Uh, and then we obviously talked about it uh, on an episode earlier, um, you know, maybe like about a month or so ago. Um, and I feel like for the most part, myself and Nick were on board for this mostly because of the Lindelof portion of the of, of it is that Nick, you very much thought that he was going to bring at least something new and interesting to the table with this. Um, while also trying to somewhat appease fans, but not necessarily like servicing them. Uh, and Toussaint was a little more apprehensive. I would, about... I would say I was downright antagonistic towards the idea of making <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. a, of a, a Watchmen series. And that's more of knotted up in sort of my feelings about <laughs> the fact is Watchmen is one of my favorite comics because I of the time when I read it, like when I was like just starting to get into graphic novels and like Watchmen was like a formative experience. And I really enjoyed reading that. And I've actually written about it in class and like for, for school and other stuff like that. It's like, so I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of love for that. And not only was my sort of antagonistic attitude towards this show, um, just the idea of the show more of knotted up in the fact that I think that Watchmen as a comic is such a perfectly self-contained, like, media artifact but also a, regards to the complicated history of Watchmen and the mistreatment of the person who wrote Watchmen and the fact that the only way that this show could exist is because of that past mistreatment and so that's sort of where my uh, where, where my apprehension came from. The only thing about that aspect which I do think is like a sad story thing as far as the way the industry works and whatnot. But isn't that true of just about anybody who wrote a comic before, like... Yeah, comic books will break your heart. No, I'm just saying, like... Jack Kirby said it best. Yeah, nobody... Up until... Not very recently, but the recent surge of actual independent publishers, right? there was no such thing as creator-owned content. Right. So, while I do think it's, you know, like, it's too bad, whatever, but also, like... That's technically true of, like, every comic property that's ever come out to the movies and whatnot. And I know Alan Moore has a more personal relationship with Watchmen than, Mm -hmm. like, the staff writer who got to do Batman for a year or whatever else. So I'm not necessarily saying it's a one-to-one analog, but I don't know. Sometimes I just hear him talk, and he sounds like a crazy old man. Oh, he is a crazy old man. And it's like... He definitely is, um, but he's also, like one of the greatest comic book writers oh, of yeah. his time. I'm not disputing his and, actual text. And, and the fact that really, really part of the reason why he is so deranged and he's so like antagonistic is because of how he was treated by DC. And had that, fair. had that not been the way it was, we would have had not just this and not just from hell and not just, um, uh, the killing joke, but we would have had even more awesome right. stories. I, I just, I, I just think that, I don't want to get off onto a tangent, but I think that it's really unfortunate. Um, I, I still remember something somebody told me, uh, an old friend from, from college, uh, years and years ago, where we were talking about something, and he just said offhand that like nobody cares where anything comes from. And I thought that was a really shitty attitude, but now like I feel like that does have 
uh, oh, a, a, definitely a, sil- has a silver merit. lining, a, a merit of truth. And that's actually really heartbreaking because if people only cared about where shit came from and actually cared about compensating those artists that created those stories that they enjoyed so much, we would likely have more of those stories instead of having to constantly go back to the to the I mean, to the well. That's to that is constantly like I, I will I will say I feel like you could go way deeper with that because I feel like that's no I'm serious. Yeah. Like I, I I feel like that's more of not just limited to artists and it, it you can get go all the way to employees at yeah. at yeah. businesses and that kind of thing. But that, but but it's 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 more well, clear in, in what you're talking specifically about. Specifically too though in the art world and whatnot, like besides the line between consumer and the artist, like yeah. it also goes to another level where it's hard to f- uh, muster up the strength to care, which I don't mean that like and that I don't, right. but it can become sometimes like a futile battle when you also have companies like Disney who want to buy the copyright to everything mm-hmm. because they don't care to the point where like even something like MLK's speech, I have a dream, is copyrighted. And like there are all these... Uh, I was notified of this because uh, every January 1st, somebody tweets out the website that is uh, what would have joined the public domain mm-hmm. on January 1st of each year had yeah. some, somebody not copyrighted it. And in this year's uh, long list of things that everybody knows, like the movie Vertigo, or I, you know, I can't remember exactly what was on there, but right. things like we all know, uh, one of them was the actual text of the speech of MLK's uh, I Have a Dream. Which I don't even know how that even works when it's a speech, but yeah. it was part of the list of yeah. something. But anyway, uh, yeah, that's it, just my two cents. It's on hard it, to like, care more than you know a business is able to like uh, buy more. Oh, Alan Moore. Ah. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, Tucson, since you already gave some sort of idea of where this comes from, and also where your initial feelings and concerns mm-hmm. came from. Why don't you start us off about what you actually thought about this? Because I think before even you're giving your opinions, I think we can all agree that this was a exceptional season of television that was put on by HBO and specifically the writers and Damon Lindelof uh, with this season of Watchmen. Um, I have to say that before Watchmen aired, I was very apprehensive about it, about three or four episodes in, I knew that this was probably going to be my favorite show of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, not even despite myself. Like I just really enjoyed what the show was doing with the source material, how it was moving beyond the source material and also how it was in conversation with that source material. I think that um, it's, it's deeply ironic for me to say this, but I think that this was such a good first season of television that it should honestly just be a limited series and there really shouldn't be a second season of Watchmen. And if there were to be a second season of Watchmen, it would have to be a radically different show because it would have to, but you saw that cliffhanger. Uh, <laughs> you know what? There was a cliffhanger at the end of the original Watchmen. And I think that that it, wasn't it, a cliffhanger. Yes, it was. No, no, this was not. Oh, for, uh, for, um, the series for the this series? series, yeah, the, uh, the, it's not technically a cliffhanger. It's just something that it, it's, ambiguity is not always a, right. An ellipsis, exactly. You know? Exactly. Sometimes it is its own form of of punctuation that just sort of harkens to the ideas. Like I don't know where the future is going to go, but it's out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
all we have to do is confront the present where it is now. Um, yeah, I think that that's probably the highest compliment that I can give to this series that I think that it should be its own self-contained thing in the same way that uh, the original Watchmen comic was because it manages to it manages to assert its own identity while also still being in conversation with the original text. Uh, there are some things that irk me as somebody who's like a Watchmen fan is like some of the uh, artistic liberties with regards to sort of the legacy characters and their depiction in this. Like it's still it's still something that I'm cool with. But if I think about it for too long, it's hard <laughs> for me to sort of like it's it's still stuck in my craw a little bit. I'm talking about particularly Ozymandias, where I like Ozymandias' depiction in this show. I like th this character, but every time I try to reconcile this Ozymandias, no matter how many years in the future he is, respective to the original comic, it's hard to like match a one-to-one -one for how... Are you talking character motivation? Or I'm, talking are you talking... About, I'm talking about just character. Okay. The character just seems so wildly different, and... To, to a point where it seems to exist outside of just the passage of time. You know now, what I mean? the character that we mostly see in modern day, mm -hmm. even though haha, that is you know not exactly what we're seeing when we see Jeremy Irons' character on screen. Right. But are you talking about like when they show flashbacks of like the like nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties Ozymandias, like? you're like seeing like there's no progression there to what he's ended up being or, or just, you're just saying that he just seems like a totally different person. It seems like a totally different person when he's at the manor. Okay. He's a lot more deranged. He's a lot more eccentric. I don't know if it's due to the conditions of where he has been confined or if it's like just the passage of time. Like I, I'm, I'm very, I like how they handle the legacy characters is that some of these, these artistic licenses just kind of like, I don't know if I entirely agree with them, but I think they're plausible within the context of this sort of like telling. Yeah. I, I see what you're saying in the sense that I kind of have the same thing about Lori yeah. because I very much love Gene Smart in the show and I very much love what Lori had to do, Exactly, but I do think there was bending going on to, you know, have that. But having said that with Ozymandias and with Lori, uh, I almost preferred that they did that then try to thread the needle into mm -hmm. that hole because then at least they were telling the story they wanted to tell yeah. instead of trying to, uh, you know, I don't know, lose value in the translation process of trying to line it up, uh, you know, perfectly. I'd rather them just do what they meant to do, knowing that their hearts and their, you know, writing is in the right place mm -hmm. uh, and then just let it, let it fall where it does. And even aside from it adapting or... Uh, extrapolating from the original source material, the story that this like show has to tell on its own when it comes to um, generational trauma, when it has to do with like trying to make peace with the past and like move on and have like a, like a better future. Like I really enjoyed that. I think that it, it felt very bold for the way that it drew from actual historical events like the, the Tulsa massacre, how it actually um, recontextualized the backstory for hooded justice, which I talked about on a previous episode. Um, just that whole dynamic is really, really fascinating to me. And even, even outside of that, like circling back to how, how it extrapolates from the original material, but how they were able to bring their own story in line w tonally with that of 
Watchmen or rather vice versa because they took what sounds on paper to be a ridiculous premise, which is a giant squid falls into the middle of New York and kills three million people with a psychic blast and then linking that to the idea of generational trauma. You you think it sounds absolutely like horrendous, but they actually managed to do that in a compelling way where they, I, I felt a lot for the character of Looking Glass and Wade Tillman. Like I was going to say, they make it felt uh, to me what you're talking about. The um, creators of the show and the writers made it feel like it wouldn't make sense if it wasn't there. Yeah. Everything if, like yeah. W- within the, the context of everything that happens immediately after the end of Watchmen and how it matches to um, – the reality of 2019 in the Watchmen world, like it all, it it all feels plausible. It all feels like it tracks, and I like that. Ironically, going off of what you're saying about the legacy characters, the two characters that they go a roundabout way of uh, setting up uh, in this show, being Hooded Justice and Doctor Manhattan. Mm-hmm are the ones that work the best, which is kind of ironic because they're the ones who are not arriving at moment one of the show as like, this is what we've been doing. Like there's a lot of sleight of hand Mm -hmm. and um, kind of not retconning, but basically uh, seismic shifts in what we know about them and what they can do that completely I thought fit. I think that a lot of people would argue with the hooded justice stuff being a a retcon. And I think that it's actually a pretty artful retcon. retcon, Because like, did did we know who Hooded Justice was? No, but at the same time, that's I think it's a, it's. <laughs> I feel it like is, it if is people say a retcon, it, it's, it's because a, they can't not see a white person. I think it's technically a retcon because I don't think that when Alan Moore wrote Watchmen, I don't think he intended for Hooded Justice to be a black man. But I think it's an artful retcon because they're actually working within that material and creating a a reason that actually feels not only plausible but also. It, it 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 brings it aligned with the actual original intentions of that character in such a way that it it arguably improves upon that character. I agree with all that. Yeah. Uh, I would just, I guess, to that say, can you prove that Alan Moore wrote Hooded Justice as a white person? I mean, now obviously you can kind of go along that thread and right. say, well, subliminally, right? You know, whatever. But pointedly, not really. Yeah. <laughs> Which, not unless you were to ask him, and he probably would never <clears throat> answer. Or- he, even if Talk he did him. write him as a white character, as long as we never see his face, it plays perfectly along with what the story is telling here of this yeah. idea of always having to be behind the mask. I mean, probably... You see portions of his face through the eye holes, but was like, that say, was explained. Probably the, the highlight of... One of the highlights of the series, at least, uh, is um, Will having to put the white makeup around his eyes for when he's wearing the mask. I mean, that is just that is just so deep into what this really is mm-hmm. and this idea of wanting to make a difference but also having to play this game. Yeah, even even being a superhero, you have to play this game. Right, yeah. Uh, the the valorization of um vigil- vigilante personalities 
only extends so far as you are not outside of the mainstream too far. Like you can only be out of the mainstream so far. You can put on a a, 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 a potato sack on your head and beat the shit out of people. But if you're a black man, I swear to God. Well, not only that, but also the show addresses the idea that um, if you have a character like Hooded Justice, like from the original series, yeah. and you don't reveal who they are, and you only get to know them through you know lines of dialogue and interactions with others, then what's going to happen is myths and whatnot are going to form, and that's why we have in universe uh, that a lot of people believe Hooded Justice was coded as a homosexual, mm-hmm. and that's why he had. And it's funny because that is another layer of the way we have a hierarchy of who you can and cannot be even behind a mask, which is that people would have first thought that, okay, if they're under the mask, they still have to be white because, you know, like no black person or whatever they think is like going to do good in the world or whatever. But maybe, maybe he's kinky, you know, like that's, uh, that's just like about saying that homosexuality is a king. Right. But like, um, so I find like even the show is playing with that perception where it not only does it, I guess you should say, as you said, like artfully retcon something, but it acknowledges that the retcon is not that far removed from what people were already kind of grafting on exactly. to Alan Moore's original right. comic. Yeah, that's what I meant. Um, yeah. Anyway. What are some other things that I really enjoy? Uh, the depiction of Dr. Manhattan. That was something that sort of like knocked the wind out of me. When you finally learn that who Dr. Manhattan is, who he has been this entire time. Uh, and not even in the, the episode, like a God walks into a bar, but uh, I think it's the one that precedes this, like this extraordinary, it might be this extraordinary being it might be this extraordinary being where she is like coming out of the coma. And then she confronts lady true. And then she goes back to the house and then she like has to retrieve the little ring from cows. Like, See, forehead. you know what? I will uh, break in there for a second. Yeah. That's that's really how you do it. Like that's why I'm saying that this is such an exceptional show because <clears throat> when we go back to the and this is early, this is in the first episode or maybe the second episode when we see the home invasion happening. Yeah. Uh, years before <laughs> with uh, Regina King's character, and you see that she ends up getting shot and is laying on the floor. Mm-hmm. And you know that she was saved by somebody. I thought that was Judd's doing. But that's the thing. Because that was the match cut like, that happened like, really from her. It really is fantastic. A, a really nice payoff then after finding out that he actually used his powers unbeknownst to him mm-hmm. at the time right. to to save her, basically. But you didn't like and that make be... it so obvious that you have to be like, ooh, what was that? Like, right. ah, that's just how you do it. Yeah. Like, like that is 101 what it should be, and yet here, here and, we are. Where, but that's also yeah. multifaceted because yeah. in that is also the ground zero for the entire it's the anima- seven. It's the animating incident for this right, entire. Calvary's plan, right. which we were not prone to knowing. Until the very last episode. Right. right. And yet it's not like hidden so much as it is just kind of there. And it was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I spent the entire uh, season, like up until like Dr. Manhattan being revealed, wondering like what possibly could force Dr. Manhattan to come back to Earth. Mm. Like what could be so <laughs> – what could be so awful – that he would decide to 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 come back and his I, life, but but no no <laughs> it was like but no. I was still stuck in sort of the mentality of why he left Earth in the first place when I didn't 
clue into the fact that he had already grown and changed from that moment as soon as he came back to Earth and that when he left and why he would come back after that. And I thought that it was just something like as soon as uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's uh, rendition of uh, Life on Mars came on, I just thought that was just the most beautiful way of sort of cementing that realization that it's the reason why he came back was so, so simple. And it was just it was love. It, it, it was just love. And then the next episode is them telling that actual love story. And I think that it's actually a really powerful and affirming love story. Mm-hmm. Like why, like how like this this character who is essentially immortal, who is presumably could never die, right? Will probably outlast the, the totality of human civilization, still finds meaning in going down to earth. And falling in love, even though he knows that it cannot last. And I think that's, I, I don't know. Like, and him making sort of that argument to Angela and eventually winning her over. Like, I think that was that was genuinely beautiful. Well, not only that, but... The, the writing for that was fucking great. Yeah, but the, the fact that it kind of boils down to a love story, it's great for two reasons. Which is that, one, it becomes the antithesis of nothing ends. You know, it's right. like, it's... Uh, it's the exact opposite, which is when he's trying to pitch her on it. He's like, well, every love, you know, dies at some point because, right. you know, you grow old, you die or whatever. Um, but the other thing that I think was really well done about the love story is that on paper, it sounds awful. Um, if like before I watched the season, if you would have told me that that would have been because one of his biggest character traits or whatever you want to call it is that he has this long history of really bad relationships. Yeah. And I would not have really cared to watch, like, another relationship, good or bad. But the fact that they actually came up with a good reason as to why this one would be different, Mm -hmm. uh, whereas basically he can exhibit love if he experiences the absence of its powers, because he is human after all, um, uh, I thought that was very well done. So, yeah, yeah, so... If I may, yeah, please. Um, we, I guess, we can, in general, at least talk. I know that we have to get to our thoughts on it, me and you, Nick. But um, we're kind of talking about Doctor Manhattan, which was definitely one of my favorite parts of the whole season. Uh, was him, and I've, and I think that was a great finale for that character. But I'm really, really fascinated by his character's motivations in the final episode. I feel like I think clearly he wants to end in my opinion in in one way or the other, and I feel like at some level he feels like this idea of living forever is somewhat of a curse for him, which makes it fascinating to me that he would that there's even an idea of him trying to pass that on to the person that he loves most, which is feels so flawed to me. Mm-hmm. Well, is it? Uh, I mean, it's a flawed system inherently. However, there could be technically a reading of hope in it because the last line of the entire series is Will talking to Angela right. saying, "Well, he could have did more." Yeah, for all he did, he could have done more. And sure. maybe I do think what we see of Angela is that she is the kind of person who would go above and beyond. Which, which, which I, um, I feel like. No? I'm a, I like I've I've just been yeah. thinking about that. I don't mean to cut you off. No, no. I I, I just I think the whole thing is very much up for debate, one way or the other, and it's pretty fascinating. Right. To me. I, I know. Well, yeah. I, don't I, think I definitely think concrete. that yeah. it's definitely coded as hopeful, but I can't help but question 
um, the rationale or the wisdom of bequeathing those powers even to the woman you love when I've already seen that woman like practice heaps of extrajudicial justice <laughs> and just beating the shit out of people in, in the most egregious ways. Like this is not a woman that is beyond her anger. The well, the, the, the the thing about about like Doctor Manhattan is that he never chose to have yeah, his powers. Yeah, I was going to say technically speaking, and that's the reason why uh, Will and Lady True, and then eventually Ozymandias tried to stop anybody from getting those powers because anybody he said it like anybody who deliberately tries to like inherit the the, the powers of a god should not have those powers well which, which, which is what, which is what uh makes my me have a little bit of a cynical view on right. the ending because right. she's clearly aware of the possibilities there with what she's doing right so but doesn't that also but Dr. Man- to the idea that he says i would never exactly not uh consensually give my powers to anybody right so he didn't uh like touch her die and now she has the powers mm-hmm. he died and left the choice with her mm-hmm. which is that's the what, I guess first that's time saying, that that's yeah. ever been done yeah. with these kind of powers in sure. the history of watchmen which i agree that it's an inherently flawed system and to give anybody powers makes them prone to you yeah. know possibly falling but this is a huge change in the way that these powers have been wielded uh, in the hundred year history of this entire. Right. That's why I ultimately find it to be a slightly hopeful ending. Sure. Dr. Manhattan's existence has been probably the most significant like factor in this entire alternate universe. Like every single divergence point in some way or another is connected to his his mere existence. So the fact that there is now somebody else who could presumably become Dr. Manhattan, which is something that people have been trying to do since he came about, like that that's going to have a lot of ramifications. And you also look at the two people. Uh if we look at uh what's whatever Dr. Manhattan's real name is. Uh Cal Abar. Well, I mean the first uh, John. Oh, John Osterman. Right. So if you compare John to an Angela the John who inherited these powers not by choice was a scientist, so it makes a lot of sense that when he gets them, he becomes this passive dick. You know, he's not a, a justice person to begin with, and he's only in it for, in this in this case, trapped in it, mm-hmm. uh, to basically exist within it, observe what happens, maybe affect a change here and there, maybe move variables around. But the power is given to a person who has been actually, who's a police officer, mm-hmm. uh, whatever you think about the law enforcement. Right, yeah. Put that aside for a second. Right, at least right, go right, with the right. analogy right. of uh, that's a, the exact opposite of a passive uh, vocation. A passive actor, but an active like. So, I mean, you know, I, I feel like this is all coded to be uh, something that was dangerously passive is now being passed on to someone who, uh, at the very least, has a slightly more uh, passion for uh, at least enacting some moral relativity. Right, yeah. It's a... Uh... I mean, cops suck, yeah. But... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a very precarious... And I, and I think that the precarity of that final shot, the hopefulness and the precarity of it, mirrors that of... The original ending of Watchmen, where it's just like this piece, this world is at peace, but it is such a fragile piece built on a lie and the the non non 
consensual deaths of millions of people that could easily be undone if people were to only believe the ravings of a madman who happened to be telling the truth. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, uh, um, in fact, that's one of my favorite things about this entire series is that Warshak is never a figure. I mean, he's an icon, but never did they ever dip into the idea of right. a new Warshak or looking back at the old Warshak. I, I think that, like, when the first trailer came out, and I think I talked about this with you guys over um, over face chat when we were, like, just, like, hashing out about that actual trailer, and what I thought was so compelling and so interesting about it, and... Honestly, I don't feel like it was really touched on in the actual series itself, but if you actually like look at it conceptually, like why it makes sense, um, I think that it totally makes sense why Rorschach's journal would become like this rallying cry for like a nativist hmm. uh, like movement of white supremacists, not because he himself might have been a white supremacist at all, but because of the fact that his very symbol is that of a Rorschach, which means that you could see in it whatever you want to see, and the very fact that for a guy who was all about the black and white division of what was true and what was false, Mm -hmm. he has no say in how his legacy is negotiated. I was going to say, I feel like the biggest thing about the using of Rorschach's journal, and even though I don't necessarily love Rorschach as a character, I mean, I think the biggest thing in this, a lot big thing about a lot of things in the real world that we live in is just the misreading of text. Yeah. And and taking what you will from it, it any words to mean whatever you want your argument to be. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not saying that a lot of what's in his journal is not leading in that direction, but you could use that and say, this means that we should do this. I mean, I still know people who watch the purge franchise and think that it in and of itself is actually a vote in favor of a purge like system. Yeah. The fact that that's even a possibility. Well, I, 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 the, the one I was thinking of in film is, one of the most obvious examples, which is right there. One of the most obvious examples, which is Fight Club, which is yeah. this reading of yeah, and it's like no, no. That was one of those yeah. those films where I not to diverge too much, but it was yeah. one of those films where I totally remember what my reaction was to the original book and the film when I was like fifteen, <gasps> sixteen, versus my reaction to the film when I was like twenty two. And it's just like a night and day difference. Like I, I finally clued in to the fact of the subtext beneath the text. I was like, yo, what the fuck? People haven't made that leap yet. Yeah, some, some people, some people, some haven't, people. Some people yeah. haven't made that leap yet. You got to take maybe a media theory class, man, because you, you can't read for shit. Like, damn. <laughs> um, but what, what, what were we talking about? We're talking about Rorschach. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I, I think that that's a really powerful message of like you don't get to decide how your legacy is interpreted and you, and, and yeah, Alan Moore. <laughs> Fuck man. <laughs> don't do that. Um, and yeah, it totally makes sense why it, 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 it totally makes sense within the context of the universe. Why his sort of like persona would be taken up as sort of a, a martyr symbol by so many. Yeah. So um, I guess I'll give my overall thoughts on this, as I know we're kind of just passing it around, but that, but uh, I think it's a good thing to do. Uh, I thought this series was absolutely fantastic. Uh, I'm 
Uh, I don't want to call myself a fanboy, but I firmly believe that HBO is putting out just extremely quality content right now uh, with their programming that they have. Um, stark differences from somebody like Netflix, which has some good stuff here and there, but... Um, it's about me, quantity. Uh, yeah, I guess. But that's the thing. HBO has a lot of series, too, and some of them aren't as good as the others. But when it's good, like HBO is does major league quality content. They got highs and they got lows. Netflix has got a lot of mid. Yeah. They just, a couple of highs. They're just having a hard time finding their voice. So Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I feel like this saying that I feel like this was just a wonderful season of television. And you um, never read the original comic. I've not. Um, my point of reference is still the Zack Snyder film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told Nick this and I may have mentioned it to Sot. Uh, I feel like Damon Lindelof definitely does not hate, uh, the Zack Snyder film as there are clear, I don't want to necessarily say references, but there are very major nods to the film that happened throughout the entirety of this uh, season of television, mm. um, which I appreciated because the reality is is that is part of Watchmen's history, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Um, so there it is. Uh, so that's really my reference point. Uh, I've still never sat down and read the actual uh, graphic novel cover to cover. Mm-hmm. I own it. I've read parts of it. Not I've never, yeah. uh, and I'm, I mean to, but I uh, have not reached the point where I'm going to be an avid reader yet, but I'd like to at some point and in my life. And not only on top of that, you didn't engage with the PDPedia stuff while the show was airing, that did you? correct. Nick, you should mention a little bit of that if, if you want. Uh, I, the PDPedia stuff? Yeah. I did not read it either. You didn't read it? I remember the first week I read the first three documents, and I thought it was cool and it was fun, but uh, I didn't even keep up with the show week to week. How oh, was I man. supposed to I'm read? I'm sorry. I, I, I guess this is, this is and this isn't really negative about the show, but like I don't... I don't want to have to read some alternative text to find out what happened to Lube Man. Like, oh, I, here's the thing, though. Yeah. I'm with Tucson in that if I were to read it, mm-hmm. I might still read it now, yeah. especially now that I've watched it all. Yeah. Uh, it's very much on purpose that there is this kind of extracurricular text because that is going hearkening back to the original comic where okay. in between each issue, or I should say at the end of every issue, there was an actual in-universe text of something, whether you so, were reading the actual memoirs. So here's memoirs the thing, of, just from my perspective, yeah. and I am not a person who's in on all this, mm-hmm. but from my perspective, it feels like some shit that Disney would do with Star Wars. So No, this no. this predates... Uh, okay, the, but... The, this, this, it's not like a, a coda. It's not like an epilogue. Yeah, no, it's, this it's, is like... This basically goes back to what Ellen Moore did in Watchmen, okay, right. which is you'd read the issue at the end of the issue. Now we're going to read an expert from the original Night Owls memoirs, like an artifact from the it, actual world. Now it, it it was part of the issue because okay. why you wouldn't sell it separately, obviously. Mm-hmm. Whereas here they're not going to put a document up on your television screen, you know whatnot. So it's like the only way to do it the same okay. way. Most of the primary details about Hooded Justice are conveyed through uh, Hollis Manson, the original Night Owls memoir. Yeah. It was all his conjectures. Yeah, too. from his conjectures like in that actual like like text. So And the reason why I didn't read them, or at least the reason why I didn't feel like the impulse to like go mm-hmm. and read them, even though I actually did read the first couple and I thought they were good. Yeah. Is because Damon Lindelof 
first real television gig was Lost, writing for that, and that show was famous for doing that kind of like, you saw the episode, now go online because this thing you saw, this company has a fake website, and if you go to the fake website, and it became this whole like... And all of that didn't really amount to shit. Yeah, and it didn't amount to shit. So was that actually like some clickbait nonsense? Yeah, that was like clickbait, whereas I know for a fact, just by reading at least one or two of you, that this is like more in line with thematic. It's way more material to the actual text than that. And if anything, uh, I didn't know that about Lost, but if anything... That sounds like a trial run for what eventually yeah. happens in this because that – like I know that Watchmen – before Damon Lindelof decided to make Watchmen, like he was very much inspired by the original Watchmen. Absolutely. Now, here's what I have to say about those documents in PDPedia. Mm-hmm. Uh, when – if they are smart – when they release the Blu-ray and DVD, they should also release a Absolutely. single issue comic yeah. that has all the PDPedia files, basically. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I don't think they will, but they should. It's not a a, a situation like packaged within. Is that it? way, you just get it. You can throw it out if you want to. Yeah, yeah. But it makes a lot more sense to me if I can have it in my hands. When you know, like, oh, maybe I'm watching an episode. I'm just going to browse through it. Yeah. Than it does for like, oh, I'm watching this episode. If I remember to go on my phone and go look at it, I will. But like, this is a a a well done approach to supplementary meta text this isn't like this isn't this isn't like prometheus answer questions will be answered sort of situation this actually adds something that even if you weren't even even if you weren't to have read those you can still understand and enjoy the actual text itself if anything like you go back and it's just more it's it's just more aha and it helps you to sort of understand, like, what are the sort of, sort of surrounding circumstances that are, like, happening around the events in Tulsa. That TED trailer, uh, that TED Talk trailer. Uh, <laughs> TED the, trailer. The, the, like, that's also good. That's for from Prometheus. a while ago. Yeah, no, the TED Talk trailer from Prometheus is still fantastic. It's still good. Yeah. yeah. I still like it. Yeah. That was cool. Uh, so, uh, just to kind of conclude my just thoughts on it not really saying much more about specific things as we're all talking about together but i thought this show was great uh i i this is not the kind of show that emily would watch usually she hated the leftovers she watched like four episodes with me and she's like can we turn this garbage off um i know i understand nick Uh, i know uh it's not everybody's thing especially the first season First season is very divisive. Uh, but she was very much interested in watching this every Sunday night when we started, got in for the first three episodes. So that was wonderful. And this is a show that I really felt like only had a couple episodes that were not as good as the others. Like it had its staples, like the pilot episodes, really good. The six episodes, fantastic. I really liked the fifth episode. The eighth episode is really good. The finale is really good. So, like, really just, like, two and three, and they're still really good. They just weren't as good as the others. But this show just had great episodes, solid content. It was really good for anyone who had never watched anything about Watchmen, I think, because I had a couple coworkers who watched this who had no real care about the graphic novel or the Zack Snyder film or anything about Watchmen. They all thought it was fantastic. Um, And I, I think big thing that really drove that was the idea of modernizing the story for this telling of it Mm -hmm. and having like actual stuff that's going on now and having it really cut pretty deep like that 
racism storyline that is going on throughout the entirety of this show and that really does kind of trail off a little bit after the hooded justice episode it does um that's like the culmination the yeah the, the climax um actually i thought the finale was a bit odd um of how they just get zapped out right away which i feel like is good in a way where you're not having this like triumphant death scene for them. Yeah, but like at the you're same not time, necessarily meriting yeah. their importance. But at the same time, it still did feel a little awkward where it's just like, okay. I The thing about, the reason why I really liked their exit was mm-hmm. because it's preceded by James Walk running around in his little whitey tighties, mm-hmm. trying to make the speech seem way more like, I don't know, dignified and glorious. Are you talking about uh, Joseph Keene Jr.? Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. it was like, I'm about to become the most powerful being in the universe. (laughs) The fact that he had to say that speech in his underwear is just great. Having my dick hanging out, it's just overkill. (laughs) Um, Anyway, sorry. No, that was was pretty much it. Uh, I, I mentioned it, I think, on our last time we talked about it, but I thought Jeremy Irons was so good in this series. Um, his portrayal of Ozymandias, even though it's not really a character that I have, you know, any affinity for, yeah. but still, it's like but, I, I liked his uh, take. His his portrayal of it is great. Uh, a lot of comedic beats come out of of what he's doing, but it's not like hamming it up. One it's, of the best fart jokes in anything. Oh in a boy, world. Yeah. yeah. How about that? That is just like going all in for that. I'm just throwing the cake. Yeah, that, the was, floor, that, was yeah that was that was fantastic. That was very good. Yeah. So many awkward moments, too, uh, with that, which even I feel like the second or third time through of watching this series, they're just never going to get any better because this is it's more of just a decision about what's happening in this universe. But like him growing the fetuses into full grown adults and having them scream in the background as he puts music on to tune that shit out. Um, is, oh, boy. Yep. That's whew. Yeah. all right. Reggae, reggae, reggae. Yeah. So no, I. This was this was really great from start to finish, and there's too many details to talk about on on an episode that we're having. But yeah, I just loved it. I thought it was it was really really fantastic, and I, I'm I, I want there to only be the, the only season. Like I uh, usually after a great season of something, you just in general I would feel like want more and want another thing to come down the pipe, and like I want this to be it. If anything, I want this to be it. And have there be like 10 or 15 years go by. And then if he wants to revisit something down the road, make it its own thing there. But this was just really, really, really good. Yeah. So If, if anything, if there were to be a second season of Watchmen, and I'm not saying there should be, but if there were, I think it would have to follow in sort of the sort of in the precedent of The Leftovers in that the second season is sort of like a, a, a reboot that reorients it to another location and then has sort of like a different sort of vibe and a different beat to it, but also having its own characters respective to that story. And if they are going to hearken to characters from this series, then they have to be handled in the same way the legacy characters were handled in this season, which is that like whoever is the main character of the second season is the sun. And those legacy characters just happen to orbit around that sun they have to be like whatever wherever their orbit may intersect with like the story of the main character like it has to be meaningful and that's the reason why night owl isn't in this story because there was no way to really meaningfully fit him in but he does sort of like relate at least to the origin story of one character which is lori and why she is there so yeah 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll give some uh, some broad thoughts and say that I thought this was wonderful as well. I was uh, definitely on board for it before it came, so maybe it was just confirmation bias, but this was exactly what I wanted from a Lindelof-penned uh, wacky superhero, but like also complex uh, text. One, one more thing. Yes. Another reason why I think that this show was so successful is that if you just take a long view, like just if you take a long view perspective of it, it essentially is structurally at least the same type of story as the original Watchmen. And that is a neo-noir mystery, like murder mystery, like set in a world of costume adventurers. It's the same description as the original. Right, right. Yeah. 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 Different characters, different structure overall, but on a whole, in a, in a, in a broad way, like that is what Watchmen is, I guess. So, yeah. 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 Um, and so, yeah, I very much enjoyed this. I thought um, there's so many things present in the show that I'm a huge sucker for that are just like television catnip to me, whether it's needle drops during end credits and um, other random things like that that um, just wholly make a unified product that I just absolutely eat up. And luckily, it's also just as good as it is. Um, but... As someone who very much loves the original comic, Watchmen, but also I don't think puts it up on the pedestal of like one of my favorite things ever. Yeah. I think it's one of the best things ever, but that's different than something I personally right. love, right. You know, like whatever. Um, but then this came out and basically became my version of that because I like television probably the most of any medium. So yeah. I, I felt like I got to experience what most people probably feel when they read the original Watchmen, which is like... But that, in the medium that like sort of speaks to you. Yeah, So I so like I said, I got those... Like those almost diligently structured episodic mm-hmm. uh, tales, because as much as this is a serialized season of television, uh, Lindelof knows how to actually create whole episodes of you know themes and characters and and how to move the pieces ever so slightly so that you're still telling uh, single individual stories within the hour. They're just building up to a larger story as it you know as it moves forward. Just like how the Hooded Justice episode is a seminal piece of just its own like almost short film because when you from start to finish it's really only about one thing and yet it obviously has huge ramifications for the entire world at large yeah and um yeah i i thought this whole thing was fantastic i thought the cast was amazing i think regina king uh is just superb yeah. uh in everything that she does and now especially this like i kind of was i remember i watched the first episode and i thought she was really good in it but i also was like you know, like, what is this character really going to mean? Like, I thought she was going to be kind of, not sidelined, but, like, almost obligatory mm-hmm. in the face of what, at the time, looked like much more interesting things. Especially when it's like, oh, we cast a Regina King, and, oh, she's going up against the big, bad KKK. And that was almost a misdirect, because while both of those things were present in this season, their adversarial battle ended up not being the end game, which I thought was really good. Right. Um, and like we had talked about earlier, it became more of a love story. Um, there were also a lot of great moments that I thought were beautifully rendered as a uh, reaction to the passage of time from the original Watchmen. Um, for example, as much as I absolutely loved the love story between uh, Angela and Cal, 
I almost feel like I got even more out of the quote-unquote love story between uh, Ozzy Mendias and Dr. Manhattan. I feel like with time, both of them came to understand each other much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and the moment before Cal sends him to, uh, was it Europa or whatever? Yeah. Uh, and Ozzy Mendias has a tear kind of fallen. He's I'll... basically like, yeah, he's like, is it? I can't remember their exact dialogue. He's like, will but... I ever live to see my paradise? Yeah, and he kind of <laughs> – there's no one who knows that the answer to that better than someone like Dr. Manhattan because mm-hmm. he's someone who knows the span of at least the time that he exists, mm-hmm. um, and yet he's still going to at least, I don't know, give him the dignity of just sending him there without answering it and letting right. him find that out for himself. Because I feel like some people would maybe be quick to call them still antagonistic by the end of this, but I really don't think they were. No. I mean they have their differences for sure. It's sort of the, the circumstances of – the moment that they found themselves in that made them antagonists. And like when Ozymandias says, I'm sorry about trying to like kill you. I think he sort of means it, but like, he's kind of an asshole, but he's like, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's not you. It was just sort of the circumstances of me having to try to save humanity that I had to try and kill you to stop you from stopping me. That's that's all it really was about. Well, it's true. And then also, of course, the dichotomy between the two of them, which is that, uh, uh, Dr. Manhattan suffers from a lack of imagination, whereas mm-hmm. Ozymandias literally is valuable because of his grand ideas mm-hmm. and his quest for something bigger and better and whatnot. Yeah. And so the idea that those two uh, – I, I just – as much as I think that Angela and uh, Dr. Manhattan are like the true love story, I feel like the true match made in heaven is always going to be those two. Um, and I will forever kind of love that scene between them before they – part ways for the basically for the last time uh it does like momentarily touch on like the theme of nuclear crisis when those two characters are brought together again after so many years in karnak and like ozymandias just asked like why did they keep on insisting like making their godforsaken bombs and dr manhattan's like you know it may seem nonsensical to you but it makes them feel safer mm-hmm. and i was like that's Pretty much yeah. the same sort of vibe that was in the original Watchmen. Like, that's why they keep on making them. People keep on making nukes in, in the age of Dr. Manhattan because they have to, even while they may realize how futile it is, they have to cling to some type of form of reactionary security, even if it means, like, mutually assured destruction because, like, he scares the shit out of them. Yeah. Um, I also give a shout out to episode five, which is the uh, Looking Glass mm, episode, yeah, it's which beautiful. was the most leftovers episode of Watchmen yeah. we got. Which not that we should get one in general, but with not one, not two, but three different covers of Careless Whisper, <laughs> each true. better than the last. <laughs> that is now, true. Now um, I was trying to remember: was that covered multiple times on Westworld? Because I think it was. I don't think. That song was okay. covered, but are you sure? I'm sure because I feel like I remember it being covered, and so I, when I kept hearing it, I was like, "Man, this seems excessive." No, <laughs> they did cover a lot of Radiohead songs on Westworld, though. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um. But yeah, no. I that, that uh, fifth episode is absolutely fantastic. I mean, that has you, one of my favorite parts of uh, the whole series, uh, and it's it's a really small detail, but it. I think really shows what this universe is um, when uh, his ex-wife, he goes in to chat with her about his findings uh, and 
she her job. Is, yeah, her job. She's basically cloning pets uh, to give them to people. Whether and they killing them when they are if not, if they're not good, they are just put into a microwave and killed. And if you read the PDPedia stuff, you'd uh-huh. learn that like that technology is something that was sold by Vite's former company when it went under. Basically, just like a clearinghouse sales, like because the same cloning technology that he used to make Bubatis in the comic yep. is now that technology that's being used to create. But, these it, pets. but it's it's fascinating. You don't need to know that. But no, but I'm also assuming it informs how he's able to do what he's doing in Europa. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, he's cloning people, right, from fetuses and. Oh my god! Yeah, like I, I thought that that was a one to one because he's got oh. he's got he's got the original humans, he's right? He's the one who made that fucking weird steampunk technology. It wasn't it wasn't that's Manhattan. What I, that's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Like, but he would have had to go out original. of his way to get it to where it was because it, he didn't have all. But but he knows it because it was his company. Right. Right. Okay. That but makes he's sense. got the originals there, so yeah. that's why. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. No. But that that aspect of it was very telling to me of what this world is and it's a different world than Westworld because that whole show is just spends almost its entire it's a whole fucking mystery box it's in, well no I was going to say it spends its whole entire season basically the last season and even most of the first season talking about the morality of this idea of are these artificial intelligence beings real or are they not and here it has clearly been decided that they are not real <laughs> and they can be eliminated anytime yeah but we also know that uh really quickly going off that idea too though is that uh lady true also used that exact same patent technology yeah. because mm-hmm. she used it for her own mother slash daughter yeah mother i think it's really interesting that Earlier on in the series, like the the episode where we see Ozymandias like doing that recreation of Doctor Manhattan's origin story, that play. Oh, My yeah. initial theory was that he was so obsessed with Doctor Manhattan that he wanted to become Doctor Manhattan, and I love that I was wrong. But it was I was wrong about the wrong the wrong person was trying to do that. It, it, I was right that somebody was trying to become Doctor Manhattan. I just. It wasn't Ozymandias. It happened to be Lady True and like all these other characters. That's why, once again, I'll just say I think that like their story, Ozymandias and Doctor Manhattan, was mm. slightly more uh, I don't know weirdly emotionally charged this time around. Yeah. Um, I will say I love the reveal of Ozymandias as he's flinging the bodies, you know, onto the moon or whatever, and the way it's it's, it's, it's like very I much. Did it! It's it's very much uh, the house that Jack built for me when oh, he's yeah. moving those bodies around. But oh. I love the poignancy of <laughs> the first glimpse of it. You think he's spelling Dr. Manhattan, mm-hmm. and then the reveal that he actually is the same daughter, which is the only reason why he gets saved, which I feel like a cynic could say he doesn't actually mean it. He just is smart and knows what – but I actually don't think that's 100% true, I mm. think, when you're <laughs> – true. Yeah. Um, I think when you're at your you know your wit's end, you either give in to love or you don't, and at least I think a fraction of it was real. Yeah. And, um, I feel like I'd have a little more cynical view on it than that, because I feel like fair, it's but... desperation. He did kill his maneuver. daughter. I feel like desperation is one of those things where, you know, I've been desperate to do things before, but I've never been desperate to the point where I would go above and beyond what I'm willing to do, whereas, like, 
to send those bodies up there. You, <laughs> like, it takes effort. Well, it takes effort, and it takes coordination in the sense that you have to pick a lane. Also so to, he could he have to... made a message to Dr. Manhattan. Right, right, could, right. But he didn't. He banked what I think is actually on a real familial connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Which also he yeah. tried to make it harder for himself as he's tried to – has to – Stay away from the game warden the whole time. Yeah, that's a great scene too. Yeah. The game warden's death scene. I had to make a person oh. who was an equal adversary. I oh, I was that. No, was I a most worthy adversary? No. Also, too, and I am always this person who's looking for things like this. But the game warden, when he takes his mask and his hat off. Definitely does resemble Edward Blake just a little bit. Just the mm. way his hair is and the way his mustache is. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. And not that it's anything that that's him or that's supposed to be you know, thought of as he's creating him like that. But it was just one of those little things that could have been a nod because there's quite a few of those throughout the entirety of, of this season. So I was I was like, oh, that looks a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So. I almost wish there was a little bit more of that trial scene. <laughs> like. Like I, I enjoy how the way how way way it ended, but like when I saw the the initial scene in the preview trailer for it, and saw like the sketch of the actual squid monster and stuff, I was like, oh, there's gonna be a reckoning. I was like, there is no reckoning for this man. No, well, I mean, not towards the very very the, end, this, but the, then that's sort of like the, left up. The weird thing about it is he has all these devoted followers basically who are holding this pantomime this this can- <laughs> this kangaroo court made up trial yeah this kangaroo court condemnation of it like yeah. oh yeah. man that's no. that the, the other thing that's pretty fascinating to me about it is and i it's really easy to say this for most things of people you know how do they do that or whatever like how did dame lindelof come up with that shit like the idea of let's have the pigs run in at this exact moment and then they're gonna hold one up and i'm like fuck how did you land on that yeah like, i don't yeah. know the, it's, the it's writers' great. room for this for this uh, series was really really good, and I think that it's a testament that Damon Lindelof has gone on record and said, like you know, the majority of the writers for this series were people of color and women. And I was like, and I I really appreciated that. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I wish you hadn't told me that. I, I feel like I think less of this show. Oh, now. shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, well, at least we'll have hooded justice. Yeah. We'll uh, this is sounds kind of weird, I guess, but I actually did like all of the um, little clips that they had that are somewhat misleading for everybody, mm-hmm. um, and they feel very much like something that you would see in like Sin City or something like that with the cartoonish violence and all of those American hero story uh, things. And actually, a guy, oh, you mean the oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. a guy who's I think an underrated actor plays the that version of Hooded Justice, Cheyenne Jackson, Cheyenne Jackson. yeah, uh, and that was. That that performance was very interesting and uh, had led to two wonderful scenes, really, because obviously the interrogation room scene is, is very good. Mm-hmm. But the scene in the market is also fantastic, which I think is in the second episode. Because obviously, it, it mirrors the actual... Well, it was good on its own. Right, like, right. It was just very good. This idea of all the patrons in there seeing this guy beat this guy to death with the, mm-hmm. the cash register and they're just like... We want you to kill him, but whew. yeah, uh, the but- na- the nature of that show within the context of the Watchmen universe is really interesting to me because I feel like it, like Nick, you know a lot more about the the history of standards and practices and like movie ratings and stuff like that, but it feels like 
that sort of show, like for the people who watch it, where you have like Angela's like son who was watching the show, you have all these people. It's like it's it's like prestige television. It's like their HBO, like what well, they're yeah, looking. Yeah, it is very much cashing in on the Ryan Murphy craze of basically recontextualizing almost recent history. Right. Because, I mean, that's the thing about, like, when you talk about something like the Tulsa Massacre or something, right. like, there are people who probably don't fathom the idea that that's recent history, but it is. If it happened in this century, basically, then it's something that, you know, is recent enough that, you know, your grandfather or somebody could have been there. Right. Um, and so Ryan Murphy has been very... Uh, prolific in the last five years of doing that with things like the OJ case and yeah. um, the Versace murder and a bunch of other things. So, um, in fact, he was actually supposed to be on the show. Uh, mm-hmm. Ryan, there was supposed to be a cameo where they were going to show like clips from the show and then they were going to show randomly at another point an interview with Ryan Murphy mm-hmm. talking about his American hero story. But I think it's what I think <laughs> is really interesting about American he- like hero story is because it is like so many other innocuous details in this story, it is an artifact of a post-Squid world. I think that the the extremism of violence and sex in that show is sort of like a, a, a cultural, like sort of like aftershock. Yeah. Like after, after you have like three million people being killed by a squid, how does that radically change how people view the world? I'll say this about and especially, what you're saying. Right. Is that I personally think that that was one of the things where it felt like that was the least alternative present alternative mm. history where I felt like we're already there. Yeah. Like, um, because we are kind of, especially with things like Netflix, like a kid can get on Netflix and watch whatever the hell they want. And there are things on Netflix, not good or bad, right. but that have extreme sex and violence and whatnot, let alone actual basic cable. and cable. Right. I, You know what's weird is like I'm watching uh, The Purge, the TV series on the channel USA. You remember USA from like 15 years ago, and if you only remember it as such, and then watch like an episode of The Purge, they're saying fuck unbleeped. Really? Yes. So, I mean, like, we are already. Standards and practices have shifted. Yeah, so we're already there. (laughs) Then you have like the Manhattan Boost, which I think we've had a conversation about before, where it's just like the idea of why did those exist and why did people go to them? And just like, it's like a, a. a post-Squid, post-Manhattan idea of a confessional booth. I mean, yeah, it is, but it's also, unfortunately, just a business collecting data. So Yeah. 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 You got to remember, too, the original... Which is, fa- which is uh, fascinating in the context of the fact that the internet doesn't exist in the world of Watchmen. Hmm. So that the, I actually haven't even, hadn't even considered that. That's so. fucking... Oh, that, that's good. That's good, Alex. Uh, (laughs) Well, the other thing, too, just to go off of that standards practice comment, is that you remember the original comic made a lot of pointed references to the state of the world at that time Mm -hmm. with regards to peep show booths and triple X stores and whatnot. Because those things are a literal vestige of the past Mm -hmm. and no longer in existence, I feel like American Hero Story is the kind of analog of where we are today in the same way that they were back then. Like. The and American, Watchmen's own equivalent of yeah. the comic code with regards to yeah. like... Like I feel like Rorschach, uh, Rorschach would have been upset with the extreme violence of, like, instead of going out uh, to the peep show booth and being like, you scum and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So it's just all become privatized, literally. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, what do we think about the Judd Crawford storyline? I thought he was a good guy. 
Um, thought he had a lot of salient points. I thought it was just, uh, to me, fascinating. Uh, and, I mean, this happens with different characters. I'm using that term too much here on this episode. But we have the different characters who have the same thing as well. Um, but I love the idea that um, Regina King's character is really just trying to defend him Mm -hmm. for most of the early portion of the uh, season. And then as obviously time goes on, it becomes much more apparent who he really was. Although she doesn't try to deny it either. She She just accepts it. Does she ever get confirmation about that other than finding the robe in his, in his wardrobe? I mean, because Lori gets the confirmation about it, Mm -hmm. but I I don't remember if, if Angela ever does. I think Angela's confirmation is witnessing his, his, what? I was just gonna say I think I think she's definitely formed an opinion. Yeah, but, yeah. I, I think her confirmation is uh, the final confirmation is her actually witnessing via Will's memory, like the final moments. Of oh yeah, life. I mean yeah. that that was that is the confirmation there. You're right, right, right about that, but but I guess I was meaning prior to that. But yes, no, that is correct. Yeah, my bad. Uh, that um the scene at the pool though in the eighth episode is so damn good just because of the conversation that's happening between will dr manhattan and angela at the same time where she mm-hmm. confirms to him about who this is and he's like who's that it's, it's a, like it's oh a, no it's a grandfather paradox where she inadvertently instigated this whole entire affair on her own and not only not only is it a really significant part of the story i also love it as a comedic beat because throughout that entire episode it's him warping around and her just getting progressively more pissed off just like motherfucker well, also, Get it's great the because there's that whole whole conversation, which plays in multiple ways, because the chicken and the egg conversation, where he's got the physical egg there, mm-hmm. and then you have that conversation that happens at the end of the episode, and then you have the physical egg that gets broken. Not to mention, they a... play the Beastie Boys song, Eggman, in like the second episode. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's even like predates... When our consciousness was able to think about it, even <laughs> though technically Cal was there. Yeah. Mm. Oh man, it's not these so people good. did good work. They did great work. They did mm. great work. Also, I love that song. Yeah, it's a great song. <laughs> There's a lot of great music in this show. I actually told Alex I have one complaint about one, literally about the entire show, which okay. is that I wish that I loved all the covers. Like I love "Life on Mars" by Trent Reznor and whatnot. Mm. I wish the final episode had actually gotten the Beatles. And not the cover of mm-hmm. I Am the Eggman. Only because I felt like that's Watchmen itself is such a pop culture pastiche and yet also I don't know, I just think it would have fit in perfectly of like and then there's President of the Set because Mad Men paid five hundred thousand dollars to use one song in one episode. So mm-hmm. I felt like the HBO should have shelled out the money. Yeah. If and AMC can do it then like I'm not actually saying that it in any way made the show or the episode worse. I just thought that would have been like yeah. Ah man. Yeah. But the cover was okay. Every original like <laughs> issue of Watchmen ended with like a quote or like a lyric from a song. Like so Bob I think Dylan, so yeah. the way that music was handled in this show both throughout the episodes and in the closing of the episodes, like I just thought it was perfect. Yeah. And I'm also glad that they didn't really reuse any of those songs. Like the movie basically went through all the songs that the original comic uh, quoted, um, like Desolation Row and uh, although that... All on the Watchtower. That My Chemical Romance uh, cover of is not great. And I don't mind them, but just that's not how that song goes. Uh, 
uh, or the times are changing and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was glad that this series had a whole new, uh, I would say, approach to music because it was less about quoting and more about uh, kind of pastiching it into its own in jokes and weird foreshadowing and yeah. whatnot. What's the name of the actor who's playing Cal? Yeah. It's uh, Yaya... Black Manta. Uh, 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 yeah, that's Yaya unfortunately Abdul. what I refer to him. Yaya Abdul-Mateen II. He was great. I will say this. Man, I feel like every single person who watched the show really thought, wow, he's a wasted character <laughs> for about six episodes or so yeah. before he then became one of the best characters on the show yeah. once he got to actually do it. It was a long game. But like... It worked because the moment he is revealed, like, that was a genuinely great performance. Mm-hmm. Not that he was doing bad work before. Right. You're but just his wondering, affectations you're... of Dr. Manhattan was so strangely uncanny yeah. where I felt like that's the exact Dr. Manhattan I felt like I was reading. That also felt like um, what's his, Billy Crudup's Dr. Manhattan. I mean, just as far as shades of it. Right. And yet it also feels like it's... Cal's version of Dr. Manhattan. Like, it, it was just... And yet, he also had different affectations for uh, pre-Cal and after. And I just thought it was a brother That guy, that actor, though, he's he's a bit on a... He, like, he feels like he's on, like, a Florence Pugh trajectory because... Ooh, pew, pew. Yeah. Like, he was in Aquaman, obviously, and then he was in Us, uh, oh, yeah. even though I didn't like that movie that much. And, and then he's going to be dating Zach Braff. <laughs> uh, Let's not talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then other than Watchmen, the upcoming projects he has include uh, he's going to be into the spiritual sequel of the Candyman uh, later this year. Dope. So we'll see about that. And then he's also going to be in the next Matrix movie. So dope. I know. All I right. agree. Yeah. yeah, I have no idea what's going on going on with that, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. We'll we'll, we'll see. see. Yeah, it's supposed to come out on the same day as uh, John Wick Four. Dope. So. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We want to go to final scores, or is there anything else anyone wanted to, to uh, hit on I'm more in general? I'm, I'm pretty confident with uh, what we've covered on this episode. Like, there's no way we could ever yeah. talk about everything. Yeah. But I think that it's pretty unanimous that it has our recommendation, and that you know, for as much as we've talked about on this episode, there's so much more to talk about okay. in Do- theory on on Watchmen. I give this a five out of five. Yeah. I think that it's a, uh, I think it's an extraordinary season of television. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's not going to be everybody's bag, but for me, uh, both as somebody who loves the original comic and did not think that it needed to have this show. I think that while it may not be necessary, it definitely feels true to to that original source material. I think that they really understand what Watchmen is and I hope that if they do make a second season that they don't fuck it up because I feel like it's even more precarious now. More than anything and and HBO in general, I mean they they've had misses obviously, I mean they do all the time, but um the idea of them trying to cash in on the success of this and having someone else do another season Sounds just terrible to me, but uh, my suspicion is that they wouldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not at least not without Damon Lindenoff being involved in some capacity. Yeah. At least having him be the, the driving force behind it. Yeah. Right. So I also thought this was fabulous and I gave it a five out of five. Um, this was, you know, everything I could want out of a season of television. It's not 
what I came here for, but it's what I'm happy it ended up being. Um, and you know, that's just a hallmark to me of, of great work, whether it be in film or in television. Um, uh, I, I don't love Watchmen and I don't, you know, hold it near and dear to my heart. Mm. Um, but this made me really appreciate the story, appreciate the characters and more appreciate the message, uh, that this property was trying to deliver. Um, this had so much to say about race, uh, and so much to say about race in 2019, uh, and where we are. And it felt, even though this is an alternate universe, it felt unfortunately authentic. Uh, and it was, it was just a very good telling of this particular story. And, um, I don't own very many seasons of television, but I will be going out and buying this as soon as it's available. Yeah. That's how good this was. Yeah. Um, so well done to, to HBO, Damon Lindelof and his whole uh, crew that, that uh, made this happen. And five out of five for me for the season of Watchmen. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Film Tank. Hi. I very much loved this season of television. I love this show. Um, I definitely also hope it does not continue, but if it does, I'm cautiously optimistic in the sense that until I see that it's bad, I'm willing to say, hey, bring it on. You know what I mean? And the moment it is bad, I will also then say, okay, we're done. No more. (laughs) Um, Stop it. But I love what we got here. I thought it was fantastic. It's not my favorite thing I watched this year on television, but it's also pretty much an inarguable object of media. Like, there's really nothing wrong with it. What I, is your favorite thing you watched this year? Uh, probably Fleabag Season 2. Oh, I need to watch that. It's, uh, what Fleabag did in the course of two and a half hours is just more emotionally crazy than anything I've watched Uh this year okay i also have to kind of think back on what aired this year too but that's like my go-to golden globes really hit the right buttons this year with fleabag and succession winning the two top prizes i probably also prefer succession a little bit more not because i think it's necessarily better but because that's slightly more just like i don't know just tailor-made for me more on the floor baby more on the floor especially because that was a second season of a tv show so like i'm even more impressed that a show that I thought was fantastic and see the one kept it, you know, mm-hmm. at the same level anyway. Uh, but I thought this was fantastic. I mean, it's probably in my top three, top five. Of sh- I watch a lot of shows. I know. <laughs> um, That's um, what I was asking. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but I love this as well. And I thought everything was fantastic. I can't wait to rewatch it. And I would say that I give her uh, four and a half. Okay. So, very good. That's fair. Boom. Anyone out there has any thoughts on Watchmen? Keep We're always here. Well, keep it to yourself. Or Just you could kidding. email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. Uh, also, you know, Send us a tweet on Twitter or uh, go to your local Manhattan booth and just, you know, yeah. dial Somebody up. tweeted us on Twitter. Oh, yeah? Like a week ago. Oh, my God. Was it like an actual person? Yeah, okay. it was. And I actually kind of forgot about it because they went on a tweet thread. Oh, God. So, okay. like, I were was they mad wait. at us? No. Okay. So I was like, I was following it, but then they were putting like 10 minutes in between each tweet, which kind of threw me off a loop for a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I was going to like think about it when it was all done, but then I think I forgot to actually go back. But. <laughs> Apparently they had just listened to our Under the Silver Lake episode and, oh. and had a few thoughts on some details that they liked about it. And there were details that we did not mention that I also thought was interesting. Yeah. Some I disagreed with, some I actually do agree with, some, you know, it, it was all good. Yeah. We'd love to keep doing that. So, uh, And I think 
something that we're we're all striving to do and and have uh, I would say failed up until this point uh, is to have more of a presence on social media in terms of at least being there attached to the show because <laughs> yeah. I feel like at least most of us have a presence on social media. Oh, I, I'm yeah, but yeah, no, and actually associating mm-hmm. with the show yeah. is definitely a goal. Yeah, something to try to try to do, but. We still love being here and doing this and hope anyone out there who listens enjoys it as well. So, yeah. And uh, we want you to know that here we go. <laughs> although it may be called Watch Men, we also welcome Watch Women. Yes, sure. You bet. So uh, to everyone out there, thank you very much for listening. Uh, from Tucson Egan, Nick Cheney, myself, Alex Diegman, thank you very much. Catch up with you next time here on Film Tank. Is it called Watchmen because John's father made watches? Oh,